Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and political columnist for the Conservative Institute, and I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles that I've read each week. You can sign up for that by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com. This week, my columns covered memes, was the theme of the first one this week. I covered the Baby Yoda memes that are everywhere and what you can take from those and then use that to learn about other memes that are in popular culture right now, specifically the one that you see everywhere, Epstein didn't kill himself. While everybody liked to say that when the, the event first happened, now it's become a meme on the internet and you just see it everywhere. So I cover what you can take and learn from that and what that tells us about culture on a larger level. And my second one, I was going through my Spotify year in review and it made me start looking and listening to some old Kanye and Jay-Z albums and it made me sort of compare the two. Kanye's had his turn here recently with his gospel album and that made me look back at Jay-Z's album, 444, where he talks through some of the events in his life where he's committed adultery and just had this bad moment with his wife, Beyonce, and how he dealt with that. And it's interesting to compare just sort of how he dealt with those moments in his life and how Kanye is dealing with them. And it's sort of an interesting comparison and contrast with how they're moving through these difficulties in their lives. And finally, in the newsletter this week, I covered impeachment. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has announced that the House Judiciary Committee is going to be working on articles of impeachment, and so I cover all of the politics so behind that and what we can learn from that. So if that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. I talk through it here on the podcast, some of those things, but I also uh, write about some subjects that I don't bother to talk about here. So if you want to make sure to get everything, just go and sign up for it there. That's the easiest way to get everything in one place. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or just about wherever you get podcasts. Those five-star reviews that you guys have been sending in go a long way towards helping others find me and building an audience. And it helps me come into contact with more listeners and readers like you. And I am grateful to everyone who sent them in so far or just sent in messages. It's good to hear from you. I enjoy getting that feedback, and it helps me make the show better. All right, so let's jump into this week's episode. This week, I'm going to be covering the debate that's been happening over the past about half week or so and uh, between conservatives and libertarians and some others on how to best handle the topic of porn in the political society. It became an issue, and I'll get into this more, when some representatives wrote a letter to the attorney general asking for more prosecutions under obscenity law. So we'll get into that more. So I'm going to cover, of course, sort of the debate that's taking place there. I've got a column coming out on it, and we're going to go into depth on some of those things. And then I'm also going to cover uh, how Kamala Harris has now dropped out, what we can learn from that, Elizabeth Warren's collapse in the polls, and then finally the focus that now is shifting back towards Joe Biden and how his past Um, particularly regarding his son, Hunter Biden, how that's beginning to impact the broader public perception of him moving forward. So that brings me to the first topic, the big debate happening on the right right now over porn. And it's a debate that's mostly happening on Twitter. 
um, just between different personalities. I've got a column coming out on on Monday talking through some of the legal aspects of pornography and just how the law and how the Supreme Court has thought about that over time. And what happened here is that four representatives in the House, four Republicans, wrote a letter to the Attorney General, uh, William Barr, to ask him to reconstitute a task force that had existed for years and was disbanded under the Obama administration. And the purpose of that task force was to go after various forms of the pornography industry using obscenity laws as the basis for targeting that. And what they're asking for is more prosecutions, and they lay out their case on why pornography is bad, how it's badly influenced society and culture, and they make you know, a broad case for why that should take place and that this task force that existed before should be reconstituted and more prosecutions should take place. So that's, the, that's sort of what started all of this. And then that was like kicking a hornet's nest. Because this is an issue that wasn't really on anyone's radar until just now. It, and frankly, you know, pornography is one of those cultural eels that everyone knows about, but none of people are talking about. Even if you get into some of the Christian circles, it's not talked about enough. You see it in places like with Bethel Church or in their moral revolution uh, center that they have built up with their podcast. They talk about it, but you're not, you don't see it talked about in the broader culture. So on one aspect, it is something that everyone needs to talk about because porn is just practically everywhere. And it needs to be talked about because these representatives, they do have a point. There's a cultural point at which they are absolutely right. Pornography has invaded just about every part of society. Uh, just it's, in, it, 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 its impact just can't be understated in any way. When you get into the abortion debate, you hear some of their advocates, they like to say and argue, even at the Supreme Court level, you see some of this in some of the cases where they will say that they've reshaped human relationships, that the existence of people having the capacity to have an abortion changes how they interact with each other. And I think that's wildly overblown, just because when you look at the full scope of human history, it's hard to say that this one thing has reshaped how humans interact with each other. And just that being the one thing, since not everybody's going to interact with that. In reality, though, you can make that case with two things. That something has interacted how humans have relationships and interact with each other. And the two things are the ease with which we've made divorce available for married couples. And the second thing is pornography, just with the ease with which you can get it. And based on polling and social science, the prevalence with which you can find it in people's lives. Some estimates say that, you know, 70 to 90 percent of all men have encountered it in some aspect in their lives or in their relationships. And so when you look and he, it, you just don't have to go that far to find these stories and find these people and these relationships where this has become an issue in their thing, in their, in their relationships with each other. And I think you can see how this is a broader impact on culture. When you look at things like the, um, the fewer amount of marriages that you see and the falling birth rate. Those two things combined. Now, you can probably look and say, well, some of this is probably going to be contraception, or that's also playing a factor. And I think that's true, but I also think there's more of an aspect for porn to play a role here because just 
overall, in general, there's just all the social studies sciences that I've seen talk about this just say that people are having less sex overall. So you're having to look and find for a cause for that as being the case. If it was just contraception that was affecting something like a falling birth rate, you probably would see a steady amount of people still having the same amount of sex, just fewer kids. That would be an example of contraception playing a play, a factor here. But the fact is people are not having, even in relationships, people are not having sex anywhere near the same amount that previous generations were having. So that tells you that there's something more at play here that's changing how people interact. Because even if it was abortion, abortion acts in sort of the same way. If their argument was true that they had changed how people interact with each other, you should still be able to see the same levels of the previous generations, and you're not. So something has changed here that actually has impacted how people are getting together, how they're meeting, how they're forming romantic relationships. It's different now, and it's changed in ways that is causing the birth rate to fall overall, and just frankly, if you talk to people who are dealing with dating apps and other situations, it just people sound more miserable dealing with things than they have in past generations. And I think you can point to porn as one of the reasons that's taking place. And that doesn't even go into all the other problems that you you can talk about. Their entire you don't have to be religious to believe some of this. There's a one of the largest communities on the uh, website Reddit is one called NoFap, which goes through pornography addiction and everything related to that, and how people who have a secular belief, it could be atheist or anything, are looking at this and saying, this has impacted my, my mind and my body and my life in negative ways, and I need to get away from it and get it away from my life. So there is a problem here. The representatives who raised this and asked for the attorney general to, to start prosecuting these things and going after the businesses, they have a point. There is a problem, and it needs to be addressed. The problem with all of the above is not cultural. The problem with it comes down to a legal level. And the problem is defining what is and isn't porn, and also more specifically, because what most people have asked for is a ban on so-called hardcore porn. And the problem with that is is that it's impossible to define what you're going to ban in that situation. So it's a little bit like, for me, when you look at whether or not you can either ban porn or severely restrict it, a lot of it comes down to how you're defining it and how you define what is unacceptable and is, is, is not acceptable. And so when you look at in, in free speech, you come across hate speech. And in the United States, we don't even bother trying to restrict hate speech because we don't know how to define it. When you go into European countries or places like Canada, they do actively police hate speech. But it also ropes in a lot of other things. So a lot of people who have religious beliefs that stand against whatever is popular in secular culture, they actually may get censored by the state due to their religious beliefs. In the United States, we've looked at that and said, well, we don't want to do that. It's impossible for us to say this one thing is hate speech, but this other is not. And so we have stayed away from it because we don't see a clean way for us to maintain a free speech society without also restricting other forms of generally accepted speech. And so we've protect, we, 
we've protected hate speech in some ways. And the same thing is sort of true when it comes to pornography. Generally speaking, when you look at the Supreme Court cases and you see all the legal discussion behind it, everyone agrees hardcore pornography is bad, it has a bad influence, and you could probably find a way to say that it's not protected speech. But the problem comes down to defining what exactly constitutes hardcore porn. And the most famous Supreme Court case that even attempted to, the Supreme Court justice just said, well, I'll know it when I see it. It was in 1963. There was a video that was involved. And he just said, well, I don't know what hardcore porn is. I can't give you a distinct definition, but I'll know it when I see it. And the video at issue in this case doesn't fall under that, whatever that definition is. And while that may sound funny to you, and it kind of is, it doesn't give you a hard line legal rule that you can say, okay, this is what constitutes porn and can be censored, and this is something that is not porn and doesn't need to be censored. So you can't form a bright line rule around, well, I'll know it when I see it. And so that made the Supreme Court come down with a rule in 1973 in a case called Miller versus California, and they came out with the Miller test. And that gave a three-prong approach towards trying to figure out whether or not something was obscene material or not. And one of the things that they did was they set a community standard. And the community standard was meant to allow for variances between states and cities. Because what might be considered obscene in Tennessee or Alabama might not be considered obscene if you go out west to California or up in the Pacific Northwest. And what is obscene to them might not be the same thing if you're in the Midwest or the, or the Northeast. Or it may shift from city to city. And so the problem with obscenity in general, just stepping outside the porn box for here for a second, is that you have to be able to set a standard that allows for these differences for different things in different cities, but also still allows you to figure out, well, this is obscene in this specific law. In this case, because they see that, they have the capacity to control it. So that's one of the things that the Supreme Court has long acknowledged, that you want to be able to allow for these differences between states and people groups. What's duked that and made that rule almost entirely impossible since 1973 is the Internet. The Internet is everywhere. It connects everyone. Anyone can get access to anything. And so the Internet has basically made us all one big large community in some aspects. And in other respects, you can kind of see where individual communities on the Internet exist. And what the court has never been able to figure out is how the Internet changes the community standard and everything else. Because you can't really set a community standard for the internet because it's made up of everyone practically. There's not a one single community that dominates it. And so you sort of have to say, well, there's not really a community standard here. Everyone's just involved. And that's what's allowed because the internet's everywhere. That's also allowed all these porn sites to pop up because they can get access to anyone in the privacy of their own home. You don't have to worry about going to the old sketchy video store or the sketchy magazine shop like you did when the Miller test first came down in 1973. Times are different then. All those things are largely gone now. 
and now you just have the internet that stepped in and replaced everything. And so you have that aspect going on, and then you have this aspect where the court said, we don't have a way to define hardcore porn, and while you're you, it's valid for states to say, hey, we want to be able to restrict this to children. The courts have basically focused in on what type of technolo- technology that would protect children from this is best. And they've mostly mostly just punted the definition of hardcore porn because they don't want to deal with that, and they focused only on technology. So I think there is room for conservatives to say, hey, we want certain technology to step in and prevent children from accessing certain areas of the Internet. And I think that's probably fine. But you're probably not going to get there by trying to come up with a definition of porn or even hardcore porn and censor it that way because there's not a good definition in law. There's been a long debate for the past 50, 60 years among conservatives, libertarians, and the legal community of just how you could come up with a comprehensive definition that only targets porn and nothing else. Because you have to remember here, a lot of times when people think of pornography, they're thinking of Playboy, like a magazine or a video on the internet. So it's something visual. But it, it encompasses far more than that, because you can also have people who only have audio only, where they're only listening for something and getting pleasure from that. Or it could come through books, all the trashy romance books that exist out there that are now one of the hot-selling items on Amazon, one of those areas where people just buy and buy and buy, those would also fall under that definition. And so the reason you have to be careful here is because you're giving the government the power not just to target a certain type of speech, but also the forms that speech comes in. So it would involve censoring or banning books, potentially music, or even you know pictures and video of certain kinds. And coming up with a bright line rule of when something moves from art to pornography or backing in is not something that's easy. So to just give you sort of an example here that I the reference in my column, people all agree that the Statue of David, as done by Michelangelo, is a work of art. It's one of the classic works of art, but it's also of a naked man, stark naked. And so it's you have to come up with a rule that says, okay, we all agree that this statue is not pornography, it is art, But how do you go from that to these videos that we're seeing here? How do you come up with a description that makes sure to leave out these artistic things and only gets the things we don't want in society? So it's a very hard line to draw. And a lot of the debate that you see happening online ignores this reality, just that it's hard to come up with that definition. And the people who are pushing this the hardest... And again, it's not all of them. The the uh, re- journalist and writer who first uh, brought this to to everyone's attention with these four representatives in their letter is Alexander DeSanctis, and she's a very smart conservative uh, thinker at National Review, and I wouldn't put her in this category at all. But some of the others who have jumped on this, like Matt Walsh and Soa Bramari at the New York Post, they're saying that the only reason that conservatives haven't found a way to ban porn and get it rid out of society is because they're not, they don't want to use government to push forward a common good. 
and they they say and they argue that we should ban porn regardless because it's part of a larger common good and doing that is a goal that conservatives should pursue. And while that may make some sense and I may be sympathetic to that and that we that it would be nice to be able to do that, the law doesn't work that way and more particularly American law doesn't work that way because you have to be able to to both protect rights as they exist and also give room for people to be themselves. I mean, that's just the way our, our law is set up. When, if people want to destroy their lives through certain means, we allow them to do that in a lot of different ways, whether through alcohol abuse or drug abuse or uh, some other things. You can do that in America. And so it's not that conservatives aren't pushing for some form of a common good. I'm going to get more into that in a second. It's more to do that the way American law is structured, you can't go around banning things that you don't want. Because if you can start banning various forms of speech under pornography, then you can, then liberals can turn around and justifiably say, well, we can ban this type. Then we can also use the same type of technology to ban hate speech. Anything that we deem hate speech, we can use the same technology to weed out all these people and ensure that they don't have a platform on the internet to speak. And we don't want that either. So you have to be very careful for who you give this power to when it comes to censorship and how they use it. If you're going to give that type of power out, it has to be heavily constrained. And the other problem that I have here talking about the common good when you're talking about some of these post-liberal types, when they're talking about banning porn for the public good or doing other things for the common good what they're what they're saying is so vague and meaningless that there's nothing really you can do with it and this may be a little esoteric for a podcast but the common good as they're defining it it has no definition they're not defining it that's the problem if you're wanting to tell people that you want to pursue a different future, one that breaks from the American tradition and breaks away from rights and protections on free speech and pursues a common good as its highest goal, you have to be able to define the common good and then point a solution or a policy that you have that accomplishes that good. And these people can't do that. They look at porn and they say, this is a problem and we need to fix the problem. And in general, and as a general point, I agree with that. But that's where their analysis stops. When you start pointing out the problems of doing that, they say that, oh, you're just an apologist for porn. And that's not true at all. What is true is that there are restrictions and protections built into American law for a reason because we do not trust, it's just as a matter of principle, people with this type of power. Because there is a long history in human history of people abusing the power to censure speech and other things. The common good that these people say we should be pursuing will not be the same for each generation, and it will not be the same for other political parties. And so what this really makes them is right-wing progressives. They're just a right-wing version of the left-wing progressives that we see on the other side who want to ban all forms of speech who want to put all forms of restrictions on the society. They're like the right-wing versions of Michael Bloomberg. He wants to ban soda and other things. And they want to do the same thing. They want that same power. They just want to pursue a different end. 
and I don't trust either of them with that power, which is why I'm fine with the protections being in place. I just also understand that's going to lead to situations where you're not going to be able to ban bad things that you identify in society. You have to be able to approach those things on a cultural level because you can't ask the law and the government to do everything you're just to do everything. So at some point, you have to have cultural institutions, whether it's the church or something else, step up to the plate and provide people a path out of this type of lifestyle because government cannot do everything. The only way you're going to get a common good in a community that applies across the board is for it to come from the ground up, from places like the church and other people who are interacting with their communities and getting everyone to move away from that together. Because what I largely see porn is, is that it's a symptom of something underlying. It's not a cause of an evil in the world. It just may seem like one. It's sort of like how people cover up their problems with alcohol or drugs or anything else. It's a symptom of something that is wrong on a deeper level. And so if it's spreading as pervasively as it is, that means there's something wrong under the surface for all Americans. There is a problem there that is not being addressed, and people are using this easy, cheap fix to get what they need to fix what they think is wrong. And so that makes it a much deeper cultural problem that has to be solved in that way. And you have to address that before you can go around addressing and trying to ban things and get people to change. Because if you snapped your finger and banned everything that you want to go on tomorrow that still doesn't mean you're going to be getting rid of that problem. People are going to turn around and try to get their fix through another means. And so that's where we are with that. I acknowledge and agree with all of the critiques that say that there's a problem here. I think they're all correct. But I don't think you can use the law as a hammer to get rid of that problem. So that's all I've got for that. When I come back from the break... We'll dive into politics, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and others, and talk about their collapse. And we're back. So the, what, well, there's been a lot that's happened since the last time I recorded a podcast over Thanksgiving. We've had Kamala Harris, the senator from California. She's dropped out of the race. We've watched Elizabeth Warren's polling collapse. And we've watched also the focus on the Democratic primary shift from people like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, shift back to people like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. I know Pete Buttigieg is having a moment in Iowa. I have my doubts there that that'll last because he's peaking a little too soon, and also he still has a ton of problems with anyone who's not white. I've covered it in the past, and I didn't want to cover it again here, so we're going to cover these others and what we can sort of tease out for why they lost their race. And the first is Kamala Harris, because she's, of the people who have dropped out, she and Beto are the two biggest names that have dropped out so far. So she was a major loss to the Democratic primary overall. If you asked anyone a year earlier from now and asked them, who do you think is going to win the Democratic primary or be one of the top three candidates as we move into the Iowa caucuses, basically everyone, 90% of all the electoral Uh, analyst out there would have said Kamala Harris would have been one of the top contenders moving into Iowa. She opened up her presidential campaign with a big splash 
in California, where she had 20,000 people come to her launch campaign. She was polling um, pretty well and decently before the first debates, where she was launching her campaign and getting a lot of positive press. And she was going to get that, continue to get that positive press because she, before Elizabeth Warren really got rolling, she was the press favorite. They were trying to help her along and get her elected. And so she went from the top of the field, from in both talent and just from where she was and the people she was hiring, she went from that to polling last or not showing up at all at any of the polls in the span of under a year, really and truly. And she had multiple failures through here that I think you can point at and say, well, this is probably what caused her. I mean, the primary reason she dropped out is she ran out of money and she was polling so poorly in California that she risked ruining the rest of her political career because if she lost just super badly in California, that could have prompted a primary opponent that could beat her. So she's really doing this to save any future prospects of a political career that she has. So the first thing that her first real major failure was over Medicare for all. And really and truly, her failure here was pursuing it at all. She should have gone after the Biden lane and gone after the moderate voters that Biden has gone over because really nobody else has challenged that lane and all of the voters are there. She didn't have the progressive or socialist credibility to go after the people who were going to vote for Bernie Sanders or who would really like Elizabeth Warren. She needed to go after where there was a lot of voters that she could snag all of them, and she didn't do that. And she tried to play it both ways. And early on, she said she was fully for Medicare for All, and she just kept having one gaffe after another trying to defend it because she, like Elizabeth Warren, didn't want to defend it when she had a gaffe that where she talked about now how she would get rid of all private insurance she quickly backpedaled and said oh well i didn't mean all that uh, you know we're going to do other things we won't get rid of people's private health insurance if they like it and everyone knows if you want the bernie sanders style medicare for all that he's pushing that means the end of private insurance private health insurance i should say it doesn't mean a public option bernie sanders style Socialist medicine means everyone gets the same type of health insurance through the government. Everyone loses their private health insurance plan. All the jobs that are currently lined up in health insurance are gone. It's a massive disruption of the entire health insurance industry. And so she was not prepared to defend that, and that cost her heavily in the Democratic primaries because health care is the major issue facing the Democratic primaries. Frankly, I think it's the major issue for all Americans, and Republicans are not very smart if they're not addressing it. And I've had similar conversations with friends who are in policy, and they say the same thing. It's an area where everyone needs to push forward and present ideas because health care is a major issue for everyone. The other thing that hurt Kamala Harris is the hit on her from Tulsi Gabbard, and I believe it was either the second or the third debate, Tulsi went after, just went after Kamala Harris for her prosecutorial record in California and all the people she threw in jail, and Tulsi just hammered her again, again, and again, and Kamala Harris, even though she had been told this was coming, she had prepared for it, she had no defense. I mean, just absolutely none whatsoever for what Tulsi hit her with, 
and that cost her. She had her brief moment where she could have run away with things with Biden, and it didn't happen. And that incapacity to answer Tulsi Gabbard and just basically revealed that Kamala Harris couldn't defend herself at any point in way, either on the stage or even as her campaign moved along. And so she began the gradual drop-off into irrelevancy from that point forward and was never able to regain any form of momentum. And that cost her. That cost her just about everything. Because once that went away, her funding went away, her donors went away, and that meant she was running on borrowed time, and couldn't make it to Iowa. Does she have much of a future campaign? I don't know. She may be considered for a vice president spot, maybe, for whoever wins. I personally think that's a long shot, just because of how much of a liability she is on the trail. She proved one thing pretty clear throughout this entire thing, and that's just she cannot do campaigning. She's bad with people, she's bad with answers, and she's not capable of defending herself at any point in way in this. So she's going to spend her time rebuilding her image in the Senate because that's all that she's got left, and that's just all she's got left now. She she has nothing else. She may be considered as a vice presidential contender. I don't think so. I don't think Biden would need somebody like her because he's going to win California pretty easily, and he already has uh, the black vote in the Democratic Party almost pretty well locked up, and no one else has been able to approach him on that. So she has to spend her time in the Senate rebuilding her image. And that brings us to the next person in the race who's collapsed, and that's Elizabeth Warren. And hers has been just also just about as large as that of Kamala Harris. It just It's happening a little bit slower because she has always had a small base of support among certain people in the Democratic Party. But since hitting her peak, where she tied Biden's lead both nationally and was leading him in Iowa, she's lost about half her support. So she approached almost 30%. She was just below that in the 28 to 29 range at her very highest peak. And now she's in the 13 to 14% range in national polls and drifting south in the early states of Iowa and New Hampshire. And so and from about six to eight weeks, she went from the darling favorite of everybody, both in the media and the Democratic Party, to now she is just losing more and more air in her campaign, campaign the longer it goes on. And this is the second time this has happened to her. It happened to her when she launched her campaign. She had probably the worst launch of any candidate I've ever seen when she launched it with her DNA test to prove that she was, in fact, a Native American. And it ended up with her apologizing to the tribe, to Indian tribes, for saying that a blood test could confirm her as a Native American. And it was just a mess, up and down. And even since then, she's her campaign scrubbed all of that from her website. And she's apologized many times for saying that she shouldn't have done that. The irony is, of course, that she said that she gained no advantage from that. So it's really weird for her to say that, you know, I'm sorry for doing this, even though she also says... It didn't cost me anything. It didn't It didn't uh, harm me in any way, and it certainly didn't harm the institutions I was working for because she still works at Harvard. So it's really weird just to see all of that. So this is her second implosion, though. After And what really got her was also, like Kamala Harris, it was Medicare for All. 
and Warren laid out plan after plan, and people kept asking her, how are you going to pay for Medicare for All? And she refused to answer that question. She did not want to answer the question of how to pay for it. Bernie Sanders always gave a solution. No one likes the solution because it's the middle class paying more taxes, but it is, in fact, a solution. And Elizabeth Warren just refused to acknowledge that that was the reality if you wanted that version of Medicare for all. She absolutely refused to attack either Bernie or provide a way forward for doing that, which meant in the end that she wasn't trusted. She was already not trusted by those on the right, but she's also not trusted by people in the Democratic Party because if you want Medicare for all and you want it more than anything else, you are willing to go through and have all of those taxes because you want that thing. Elizabeth Warren doesn't want the taxes, and so that means to progressives that she's probably not that not that much of a fighter. And so all of this reputation and image building that she's made where she's trying to make, you know, build herself as the wonk with a plan, it falls apart when you start looking at the fact that she doesn't want to make any of the hard choices here. She's talked about, you know, doing stuff in her third year of presidents when she's probably going to have lost the House through um, just just that's just the way things go in electoral politics right now. If you're the president, you're going to lose seats in the midterms. And so for her to think that she's going to do something after a midterm election is absolutely hilarious. That's not been the case at any point in time in the last or really this century. You have to have all the above. So. The good thing about Warren's collapse, though, is that it's good for conservatives because it means socialism is failing. She was trying to present herself as not a socialist per se, but as sort of a form of a socialist light, just a progressive pushing for the same goals of the socialist, just trying to do it in a wonkier way. And that's failed. That's failed, and Bernie Sanders is stuck at at around 15% of the overall support. So socialism as a winning ideology is failing in the Democratic Party to take hold. The people who are pushing it the hardest, people like Kamala Harris, people like Elizabeth Warren, they're fading and either dropping out or losing steam considerably. So it's good that socialism is failing, that it has a restricted and small base in the Democratic Party. I would like that to be zero, but the amount of support they actually have in the Democratic Party is not as big as people like to make it out to be. There is a socialist wing of the Democratic Party. It's just not as prevalent or as ascendant as people think that it was. And that is the good news behind Elizabeth Warren falling in the polls. And so if you have Kamala Harris dropping out, you have Elizabeth Warren falling in the polls, that means that you have one person who is now beginning to draw all the attention to himself again, and that is Joe Biden. And the focus on Biden is interesting just because it's different this time around. He he still has a pretty commanding lead in the national polls, but the focus from the media and the focus from voters has changed. He's getting he's getting questions now that you would have thought just reading and watching politics would have come from conservatives or come from the right or Donald Trump. And they're not. They're coming from Warren supporters, they're coming from progressives, and they're coming from reporters. 
And what people are asking him is about Hunter Biden. People don't like the fact that Hunter Biden got a gig on the board of a Ukrainian oil company, something for which he has no expertise, knowledge, or even business being in. But he got that while Joe Biden was president and headed up the task force for Ukraine and dealing with all of their matters. So if you're just a person looking in from the outside, it looks corrupt and it looks wrong. And so Biden is having to answer that. And so what I'm going to play now is a clip from Axios. They had an interview with Biden on HBO, and they talked with him and hit him several times with this, trying to get him to answer how he was going to answer these these uh, these questions about Hunter Biden. And so this is his answer and him talking on Axios. On your son, Hunter Biden, uh, President Trump says, Sweepy Joe has real problems. Reminds me of Crooked Hillary and her 33,000 deleted emails. A lot of the Ukraine charges about you have been debunked and were unfair. There's one thing that a lot of Democrats even do wonder about, and that is Hunter Biden, your son, was getting paid a lot of money to serve on the board of a Ukrainian energy company facing serious corruption charges. You were the vice president running point on Ukraine. The average Joe hears that and says, that sounds fishy. What's your understanding of what your son was doing for an extraordinary amount of money? I don't know what he was doing. I know he was on the board. I found out he was on the board after he was on the board. And that was it. And there's nobody. Well, no you've had a lot of time. Isn't this something you want to get to the bottom of? No, because I trust my son. But that doesn't pass the smell test. Like, when you're vice president, isn't there a higher standard? Don't you need to know no. what's happening with your family? Don't you need to put down no. some guardrails? Un un unless there was something that was, uh, there was something on its face that was wrong. There's nothing on its face that was wrong. So Look, if you want to talk about problems, you know, let's talk about Trump's family. I mean, come on. This is... So... <laughs> These so guys are amazing. So you think that everything that happened was kosher? You know there's not one single bit of evidence, not one little tiny bit, to suggest anything done was wrong. You know that. But you keep asking me these questions. It's okay. He, you, know, you're, you're, you know, you're doing what you have to do. But I'm not worried about it. Look, the American public knows me. Last one on this. Uh, <laughs> okay. Say you're elected, you're in office. What guardrails would you have to be sure that your son, your brother Jimmy, doesn't uh, do anything to trade on the family name. They will not be engaged in any foreign business because of what's happened in this administration. No one's going to be seeking patents for things from China. No one's going to be engaged in that kind of thing. So no foreign business for your Correct. relatives in office. So that's Joe Biden's answer on Hunter Biden and talking about what his son did working in Ukraine on the board of an oil company while he was vice president. And I just have to say, that's a bad answer. That's just a straight-up bad answer for a question that he has to know is coming. And he has to expect that people are going to look at that and say, that doesn't look right. And I get his point here where he's saying, you know, there was nothing reported that was wrong. But there was a piece, it was either in the Washington Post or the Atlantic or somewhere, and they had a phrase on this that I thought was perfect, where they said, our elites have perfectly legal and perfectly accepted forms of corruption. 
And I think that's just the best way to describe this, because the only reason Hunter Biden got this position was based off his name. He has no expertise in oil. He has no expertise in anything in Ukraine-related. The only reason he got that was access due to his father's name. Now, that doesn't mean that anything bad happened, legally speaking. It's sort of like the Clinton Foundation. The Clinton Foundation can't get any donations to it now. People don't, all the foreign entities that gave to it constantly while she was either Secretary of State or through while she was a senator, all of that, it doesn't get any of that anymore because there's nothing just for them to sell. And when she was Secretary of State, the Clinton Foundation was taking in millions from all these different groups, and it was all perfectly legal. They didn't commit any fraud or felonies that we know of. And so it's an accepted form of corrupt behavior. We allow this under law, but just because we allow it doesn't mean that it's right. And, and that's the thing that he's missing here, because he, the reporter's right. A normal person who looks at this says, that's not right. And Biden wants to turn around and flip it and say, you know, you can't look at me like this. Look at the guy in the White House. And while that's fine to say that, I agree with him that there are problems with having all of Trump's kids working in the White House and still working in the family business. There's a lot of access problems there. There's a lot of transparency that's wrong with there. He can't make that argument on them because he's got the same problem with his son. No one believes him that he's going that there won't be anything because he's saying that he didn't know anything was happening when he was a vice president. And so you have to know that this legal type of what looks like corrupt behavior isn't good. And the other thing that's interesting here is that it's interesting to see that the Hunter Biden story and the angle to this with Biden is sticking and it's coming, questions about it are coming both from the media and they're coming from Democrats. Because what triggered this series of questions on Axios was a confrontation that Biden had in a town hall where a Warren supporter was asking Biden about Hunter Biden and asking him why this took place and why this happened. And Biden just exploded on the guy, just calling him a liar. And at one point, he let it slip that he thought the guy was fat. He meant to say facts. It came out as fat. You know, just one of those typical Iowa things that Joe Biden's had. And... This narrative that Hunter Biden is corrupt is sticking on Biden, and it's something that's clearly annoying him and annoying his campaign, but it's coloring the, the public perception of him, and it's doing it in the Democratic Party. And so if it means that it's coloring people's view of him in the Democratic Party, that means it'll also color people's perception of him in the general election as well. And so Biden's attacks on Trump aren't going to have quite the same weight that he wants them to have because people are looking at him and saying, well, your family's done the same thing. They profited via in Ukraine, and they profited while you were vice president, and Obama was president. So it's something that he loses as an attack on Trump, and also it costs him in the general election a little bit. So it's interesting to see how this is playing out and affecting the politics. It's not just some random right-wing attack. When Biden was in the town hall with this Warren supporter, he was accusing the person of just watch, basically just watching cable TV and Fox News and getting all their information from there. It's not that. It's 
something else. It's a deeper thing with Biden where people are beginning to question him and question whether or not he is the best person for this job because he's got equal amounts of corruption to Trump. And if not equal, equally troubling things in his past, in his life, with Hunter Biden. So it's something to watch moving forward. And that's all I've got on the stuff for this week. Keep watching that. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, feel free to reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes. If you click on if you're on a mobile phone and you click on the icon for this show, it'll pop up there for you. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. You can look for my next columns to come out on Monday and Fridays at the Conservative Institute. And my newsletters go out early Friday morning. So if you want to get that, where you have links to all of my columns, links to this podcast, you can go there. Make sure to sign up and you'll get that in your inbox. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And until that next one, I'm leaving you with a classic holiday parody, Make It So, by Jean-Luc Picard. And I hope you enjoy, and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go. Make it so. Make it so. Make it so. Man, it doesn't show signs of stopping. And I brought me some tea gray hot. The lights turned way down below. Make it so. Make it so. Make it so. When we finally kiss. Good night. How I hate going out in the storm. But if you... Really? Shut up, Wesley. All the way home, I'll be... Warm. Oh, the fire is slowly dying. And I dear... We're still goodbye, then. But as long as you love me, so... Make it so. Make it so. Make it so. Make it so.